Well, I sort of feel bad. I got to thinking about it. Last week, we kind of left the Israelites hanging, if you'll remember. Uh, They were frozen in fear, standing before God, wondering what to do about their sin. Now, we took the time to answer that question for us, but we never went back and answered that question for them. So, I think it's only right that we don't keep them waiting any longer than we have to and begin to look at that together. If you'll remember, God took the initiative to meet with His people. And if you'll recall, that experience was something that they will never, ever forget. God's presence descended upon Mount Sinai. There was thunder. There was lightning. There was smoke. There was fire. There was strong winds. There were trumpets blaring. This was the most terrifyingly wonderful experience they could ever imagine. And you'll also recall that God purposefully kept his people at a distance. There was a barrier that they could not cross. They had to be separated because their sin demanded his judgment. And the more God spoke of his law, the heavier that burden of guilt was felt by those people to the point that they finally said, God, please, please don't speak to us any longer. In fact, look at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Listen to what they said. Exodus chapter 20, verse 19. In the midst of this appearance of God before the people on Mount Sinai, they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of Him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. Moses says that the presence of God was a test of faith for His people. Would they listen and obey? You'll remember that covenant promise that was made between God and His people. He says, if you will listen to my words and receive my commandments... And walk in obedience, I will be your healer. And he's creating an experience that he wants to remind them of from that day forward. Or as Moses suggests, that the fear of God would motivate them to live without sin. Now here's where the grace of God comes in. Because no matter how sincere They may have been on that day, no matter how motivated they might have been to walk in obedience, every single one of them was going to fall short. Every one of them. It is not possible to live without sin. So that begs the question, what do we do with the sin? Well, the tabernacle is one of the ways that God answers that question For the Israelites. It's his divine provision of how his people live within his presence. But please understand the tabernacle is not some magical formula that somehow makes their sins disappear. Okay? It is a shadow of things to come, a a pattern of things yet future. It's a picture of God's ultimate solution. 
And that's what we're going to look at together this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I look forward to being in your word with these people this morning. I get excited when I think about how intentional you are about declaring the work of your salvation, your solution, your redemption among a sinful people who seeks to know you and to be known by you. All throughout the Bible, you declare that story, that story of redemption over and over again. And this morning, we're going to see it in living color. The, the symbolism and the pictures that you use to make that point clear. Help us not to miss it. That it would jump out and see, we would see it in ways that we've never appreciated before. And it would cause our hearts to sing with praise and be in awe of your goodness towards us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to do this a little different this morning. Uh, It's hard to speak about the tabernacle without seeing it. And so it's difficult for me to do two things at once. So if you'll give me grace this morning, I'll stumble through this. But I kind of want to give us a kind of a virtual tour of of what this is going to look like. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to follow the order more or less to what Moses uses when he describes the temple in Exodus 25 through 30. And the reason I'm doing that is because I think the order is important. In that order, there is a lesson. Because when describing the tabernacle, we'll see that Moses starts on the inside and moves outward. He starts with the presence of God and then moves out towards the people of God. Because ultimately, the tabernacle is not about man's way of meeting with God. It's about God's way of meeting with man. That's why it's from the inside out, because it has to start with him. It's not about what man does to meet with God. It's about what God does to meet with man. So let's begin to look at that together. Turn to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. Are we up? There we go. Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. Exodus 25, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. This is the contribution which you shall raise from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing of oil, for the fragrant incense, Onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furniture, just so you shall construct it. So I want you to notice, first of all, that God gives his people an opportunity to be involved. It's an invitation. It's important to see this, that as an invitation, nobody is being required to contribute. They're not being made to feel guilty if they do or if they don't. They're simply being invited by God to participate. He wants those contributions to be from his heart. That's why they're not required. He wants it to be an act of worship so that they give willfully and and willingly to the work of God. Because worship, by definition, is voluntary. 
It can't be forced. And so he invites them to be involved. If you look closely, though, they offer things that you wouldn't expect to be in the possession of a former slave, right? Things like gold and silver and bronze and fine linen and priceless jewels. (laughs) These are not things that they work to earn. If you think about it, these are the things that were given to them by the Egyptians when they left Israel. And so, in the very essence of what they're giving, they're offering back to God what he's already given to them. Isn't that what worship is? Praising God for what he's already given us. I also want you to notice in verse 9 that God is giving Moses a pattern from which to build the temple. Now think about that. A, A pattern is something that you copy from. So if I wanted to draw my hand, I would use my hand as a pattern, and I might draw around my hand. The same idea here. The idea is that God is giving Moses a vision of a heaven reality that will then be symbolized in this earthly tabernacle. Hebrews 8.5 says that the tabernacle is a shadow, a pattern of heavenly things. It was intended to reflect a heavenly reality, that reality that, that God shows to Moses and then instructs him on how to build it on earth. So let's start from the inside, as Moses does, and work our way out. The first thing is the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus chapter 25, verse 10 begins to describe that. It says, They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high. I'll just tell you up front that's uh, four and a half feet long, two and a, half, two and a quarter feet uh, wide, and two and a quarter feet tall. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out you shall overlay it. And you, you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it to fasten them on their feet, and two rings so that they shall be on one side and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark with them. Because remember, this is a movable tabernacle. It goes with them from place to place. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. The first thing that jumps out as you've heard me describe the, the tabernacle or the, the Ark of the Covenant is how small it is. <laughs> so just to kind of put it in perspective, this is its size in comparison to the scale of a typical man. It's not very big, is it? Four and a half feet wide, two and a half feet, or two and a quarter feet tall, and two and a quarter feet long. So even though it represents the place where God's glory dwells, it's actually no bigger than a footstool which may be part of the design. In fact, you don't need to turn there. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 2, listen to how David describes the Ark of the Covenant. It says, Then King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I made preparations to build it. We know that David didn't build the temple. He wanted to take this uh, temporary dwelling place and build the temple. 
but he forfeited that right through his disobedience, and that privilege was given to his son Solomon. But as he looked at the temple and he thought about that Ark of the Covenant, he calls it a footstool. So the reason I think that's important is because the Ark of the Covenant was not intended to be some space, some box that the glory of God would then dwell in. I want you to look at it like an intersection, a place where heaven meets earth, a place where the heavenly king might rest his holy feet on the footstool of God. The earthly place where his heavenly glory dwells. According to verse 16, inside the Ark of the Covenant was the testimony of God. Those are the Ten Commandments. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, as we talked about, are, are God's righteousness revealed in the law. This is the standard by which all men are judged as they stand before the throne of God, which is the very reason that this next piece of the Ark of the Covenant is so vitally important. It's the mercy seat. Let's look at that together in Exodus chapter 25, verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half uh, cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and the other on the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The, the faces of the cherubim are turned towards the mercy seat. You shall place the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the Ark of the Covenant, I will speak to you about all I have, and I will give to you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So in a sense, kind of the lid of the, the Ark of the Covenant is the, the mercy seat. You'll know that on the Day of Atonement, that high priest, one time a year, takes the blood of that atonement sacrifice and comes and sprinkles that blood onto the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing just how God's wrath, his judgment for sin, will be satisfied through a blood sacrifice. Nobody can enter the presence of God apart from that blood sacrifice. You see, sin demands God's judgment. And the blood of that sacrifice is what covers their sin. It, it pictures the way in which they enter into the presence of God. The mercy seat was covered by two cherubs, two cherubim. These are angelic beings that you see all throughout Scripture surrounding the throne of God. They can be called by different names, but they serve a very similar purpose. They're created by God to be ministers for him, and those that surround the throne have a specific role. My favorite passage of describing what that looks like is in Isaiah. You can just listen to what it says. It's in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. When Isaiah is confronted with the presence of God in the vision, it says this, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. Then he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, the angels are present around the throne of God with the purpose of giving Him praise. And the same is true in this pattern of this heavenly reality within the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim surround The presence of God symbolizing the praise that he deserves. Now, as a side note, did you notice Isaiah's response when in the presence of God? (laughs) Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. It's just like we talked about last week. (laughs) The righteousness of God always reveals the sinfulness of man. It's true for Isaiah, and it's true for you and I. So the room in which the Ark of the Covenant was kept is called the Holy of Holies. And the Ark of the Covenant was the only thing in this room. It was like the footstool of God's throne, the place where God's glory would dwell, the place where that sin offering was made when the blood was put on the mercy seat before the throne of God. And that's the only way that the judgment of God would ultimately be satisfied. Now, as you exit the Holy of Holies, you enter into what is called the holy place. And there you'll find a table of bread. Let's look at how Scripture describes that. Exodus 25, verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long and one cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold. And make a gold border around it. You shall make it for a rim of a handbreadth around you. And you shall make a gold border for the rim around it. And then on verse 30. You shall set bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. So this is what's known as the table of, of showbread. And on the table were actually 12 loaves of bread. I believe those 12 loaves symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites were the only ones, as they ministered within the tabernacle, who were able to partake of the bread at this table. They are the ones who served as representatives of those 12 tribes. It symbolized something very similar to what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. Anytime you have a meal with somebody, it's an intimate fellowship, isn't it? When you invite somebody to your table. Well, God has invited them to his table. That bread is a representative of the communion that he desires to have with them, the the fellowship that he longs to have with his people. So eating that bread symbolized that fellowship. Also in the room was a golden lampstand. Look at chapter 25, verse 31. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be out of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. 
in verse 33, three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms. In each branch, a bulb and a flower, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms. And the other, a branch, a bulb and a flower. Six, so for six branches going out from the lampstand. In the lampstand, four cups shaped like olive blossoms, in bulbs and its flowers. You see, the lampstand ultimately is created to be beautiful, but it also has an important purpose. It's the only source of light in that room. There are no windows in the tabernacle. And and so without light, it's a very dark place. You would not be able to find your way around. So the lampstand is the only source of light in that room. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, well, what about the Holy of Holies? There's no windows in there either. And that too would be a very dark place. Well, what we learn from Scripture is that the glory of God is what provides the light for the Holy of Holies. And now, the lampstand is what provides the light within the holy place. And when you think about the lampstand, don't think about uh, candles, okay? This is an oil lamp. And that oil was actually provided by God's people. In chapter 27, verse 20, it says this, You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil beaten from olives, For the light, to make a lamp burn continually. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall keep in in order from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout the generations for the sons of Israel. If you look in the Bible, oil is very often a symbol of the Holy Spirit. For example, when Samuel anointed David as king, the scripture says that from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. That anointing of the oil represented, it symbolized the presence of the Holy Spirit. So God's glory was the light in the Holy of Holies. God's Spirit was the fuel, the the source of light within the holy place in either case. God is the one who is illuminating the way, giving light in a very dark place. Do do you see how every piece has purpose and intention, and it symbolizes something of great significance? Well, let's continue. Since we're talking about those two spaces, the, the holy of holies and the holy place, let's talk about the veil that separates them in between. Exodus 26, verse 31, will describe that. Let's look at it together. Exodus chapter 26, verse 31. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet, royal colors, material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful man. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold. On four sockets of silver, you shall hang up the veil under the clasp. Shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil. The veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. Now that's important. The veil is a partition, a separation between the holy place and the holy of holies. Because all access would ultimately be protected by this veil. It symbolized the separation between a holy God and sinful man. 
it was like that barrier on Mount Sinai that kept the people out of a, a, a distance away from the presence of God. Only the high priest, that one day a year, for the single purpose of an atonement, as he sprinkles the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, could enter into the Holy of Holies. It's a picture of what is required to satisfy the judgment of God for the sinfulness of man. Now, there's one other thing in the holy place. It's the altar of incense. It's in chapter 30, verse 6. So flip over to chapter 30, verse 6. You shall put this altar, the altar of incense, in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony, where I will meet with you. The altar is technically positioned right in front of the veil within the holy place. And its position is important. What we know is they took a coal from the altar of sacrifice that we will get to here in a moment. But they would take that coal from the altar of sacrifice, they would put it on this altar of incense, and they would sprinkle incense onto that hot coal, and a sweet-smelling smoke would rise up from the altar. And because of its position next to the Holy of Holies, that smoke would enter into that most holy place where the presence of God might dwell. There would never be a time, the scripture tells us, when the incense wouldn't be burning. It was to be continual. It also is clear that there is no other sacrifice to be made on this altar other than the burning of this incense. Very often in the Bible, the burning of incense, the, the smoke that is lifted up, symbolizes the prayers of God's people being lifted up into the presence of God. We know that even in the New Testament, it says, pray without ceasing. That same idea that there should never be a time where God's people aren't praying, lifting up prayers into His presence. Our prayers reflect a heart of a dependence. And that humble heart of dependence is a sweet aroma in the presence of God. Okay, so now we're going to move from inside this tabernacle now to, to the outside. I want to give you a big picture of what that looks like. Okay, are we stuck? Can you hit the image on the bottom where it makes the full slide? There you go. All right, we'll get there. Pass it? I heard past it. Oh, go to the picture with the tabernacle. Right there. Good. All right, so this will give you the big picture. So we've been talking about everything that's existed inside the tent, okay? There's a court that surrounds the tent of which the people would come in to offer their sacrifices. So let's kind of walk from the outside going towards the tabernacle and see what God instructs Moses to do along the way. The first thing you'll find is the altar of burnt offering. Uh, this is the place where the sacrifices are made. Turn to Exodus chapter 27, verse 1. Exodus chapter 27, verse 1. Here he describes this 
bronze altar, this altar of sacrifice. It says, you shall make the altar out of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on the four corners, and its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall, you shall make its pails for removing its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils out of bronze. And, and then it goes on to describe how that altar is to be used. All the sacrifices brought forth by the people of Israel were ultimately made on this altar. The blood was never shed with inside the, the tabernacle itself. It was always outside of the tabernacle in the court that surrounded the tent. What that means is that access to God's presence was only possible through the blood of a sacrifice. Again, on the Day of Atonement, that sacrifice had to be an unblemished lamb, a perfect sacrifice, if you will, and only the blood of that sacrifice made by the high priest on one time of year as that blood was spread on the mercy seat to satisfy the judgment of God for the sinfulness of man. From the altar of sacrifice, as you move towards the temple, you run into the bronze basin. Look at what it says in chapter 30, verse 17. Chapter 30, verse 17. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a lava of bronze with its base of bronze for washing. And you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet from it. And they shall enter the tent meeting. Uh, meeting. They shall wash with water that they will not die. Or, or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a, a fire sacrifice to the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet. So that they will not die. And it shall be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron, for his descendants, throughout all the generations. The bronze basin was a big bowl filled with water. The priests who were the ones overseeing the sacrifices being made, it's a messy job. And so before they entered into the tent of meeting, into the tabernacle, that tent where they would go before the presence of God, they would wash their hands and they would wash their feet. It was important for them to be purposeful about being pure and clean as they entered into the presence of God. It symbolizes the, the purifying work of the Spirit and the work of ministry of the people who came before God. Because ultimately that life of ministry was a life of worship. And you want to be prepared as you go before God to have the right heart as you worship Him. So as you can see, everything about the tabernacle is filled with symbolism. It's very intentional, very detailed in how it's described, isn't it? It's as if God wants to make sure it's done exactly like he's instructed so that we don't miss what he's trying to show us. That we don't miss the shadow or the pattern that it represents of this heavenly reality. That he wants to make known. And this is actually where it gets really fun. We could go a hundred different directions from here. But where I want to go is Hebrews chapter 9. So if you will turn to Hebrews chapter 9 with me. 
Because like we saw last week, the writer of Hebrews, once again, will look back to exactly what we've just been looking at together this morning. So let's look at that together. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was the tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies. Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod was but, which budded, and the table, tablets of the covenant. So the, the writer of Hebrews is beginning to describe everything that we've talked about this morning. In verse 4, he actually includes some two, two new things, doesn't he? That are placed within the Ark of the Covenant along with the Ten Commandments. Those two things are a golden jar of manna, which we should know about, right? Manna is what God provided the Israelites during their time in the wilderness. That meant manna represents God's faithful provision for the sustenance of his people as they put their faith and trust in him. It teaches them, it teaches us that our spiritual health is dependent upon God's faithful provision. Now, along with that is Aaron's staff that had budded. Now, the reason that's important is because a staff is a dead stick, right? So a dead stick that sprouts living branches is miraculous. Would you agree? And it's important to notice that that, that staff, that miraculous staff that budded blossoms belonged to Aaron. Aaron is the one who is the father of the Levites, that Levitical priesthood who ministered within the temple. So I want you to think about this. Inside the Ark of the Covenant is the provision of God, the priesthood of Aaron, and the requirement of the law. Let me say that again. The provision of God, the priesthood of Aaron, and the requirement of the law. Or more specifically, the provision of God, which allowed the priesthood of Aaron through the high priest on the Day of Atonement to present the sacrifice to satisfy the judgment of God. If you think about it, what's included within the Ark of the Covenant is the message of the gospel. The provision of God to provide a sacrifice that would satisfy his judgment. Now look at verse 5. And above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, the, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Again, the writer of Hebrews is describing what we've talked about. It's the Day of Atonement, isn't it? That day when the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies and presents the sacrifice, that blood of the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And this is how the people of God lived peacefully in the presence of God. But the tabernacle 
was not the solution in and of itself. There was nothing that happened there that somehow miraculously removed the sins of the Israelites. Instead, it was a shadow of things to come. We know that because Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says this, For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, speaking of the day of atonement, year by year, those cannot make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not have ceased to be offered. In other words, they would still be going on. But in those sacrifices, there is reminder of sins year by year. So the sacrifices ultimately weren't for the removal of sins, but for the reminder of sins. And in that reminder... The ability for the people of God to come humbly before him, asking and praying for his mercy, for his provision. And that is ultimately provided in verse 11. Look at that. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. There's the answer. Everything that happened within the tabernacle was intended to ultimately point to the work of Jesus Christ. Every detail was fulfilled ultimately through the work of Jesus Christ. So this is where it's get fun. Let's, let's just walk back through it to see it firsthand. Let's start at the beginning in the altar of sacrifice. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And as we move forward towards the presence of God, we know that Jesus is the reason that we are washed clean, that we are made pure, so that we can enter into the presence of God. And that golden lampstand should remind us of the words that even Jesus himself spoke. What did he say? I am the light of the world. (laughs) A light that is empowered by the Spirit. A light that shines in the darkness. And it's that light that he tells us, let your light. How did we get that light? Through the presence of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. So let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Because that that light reflects him. That table of showbread. Reminds us of Jesus' words when he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger again. The one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's the one. Jesus is the one who satisfies our spiritual hunger. He's the one. Jesus is the one who leads us into fellowship with God. And the altar of incense reminds us of how satisfying that sacrifice was. It was a a sweet aroma in the 
heart in the eyes of God. It even says in Scripture that Jesus intercedes for us, even now, offering up prayers on our behalf. The veil that separated sinful man from holy God, what happened to it on the day that Jesus died? It was rent in two, torn from top to bottom. Why? Because the barrier has been broken by the work of Christ on the cross. We are no longer separated from the holy presence of God because we have been cleansed by the blood of the sacrifice of Christ. And I think this may be the most important part of all. Remember how the Bible says, in fact, in Hebrews, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory? Remember how the glory of God radiated within the holy of holies? (laughs) That radiance, that glory of God became flesh and dwelt among us. In fact, if you look at that verse in the original language in John, where it said the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word dwelled, we translate dwelled in English, you know what the actual word literally means? Tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it amazing how the Bible is so clearly helping us understand that the only reason that that one sacrifice was sufficient for all men for all time who put their faith in Christ is because the glory of God was Jesus, God incarnate? The reason the sacrifice was satisfying is because it was made by God himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the radiance of God's glory who dwelt among us. Everything that happened in the tabernacle points to the work of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 15 of chapter 9. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place through the redemption of the transgressions, that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive promise of an eternal inheritance. That first covenant was the law that none of us could measure up to. An example of perfect love that nobody can meet. Everyone falls short. And the grace of God is what allows us a provision that we could have never made on our own merits. And he made it through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is ultimately the answer of how sinful man lives eternally in the presence of God. Wasn't that the question of the Israelites to begin with? Isn't that the question that our hearts long for most as well? How does sinful man live in the presence of a holy God for all eternity? Well, that answer is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's how sinful man lives eternally in the presence of God. And the more we think about that, and the more we look at passages like this that are so intentional, so so purposeful, it's as if God is going into such great detail that he doesn't want us to miss it, right? Do you get that sense? And that story's repeated over and over throughout Scripture. And even Jesus himself says, I am everything that the Scripture said would be. I am the fulfillment. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. What intention, what purpose 
And yet the world around us wants to somehow convince us that it's confusing. Is there anything confusing about the intention of what we just walked through this morning and the fulfillment of what happened on the cross through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? I think it's just the opposite. I think God has gone to such great lengths because he doesn't want us to miss it. And the more we think about these kinds of things, the less I think we should be distracted by what is happening around us in the world. The more we think about God's purpose and intention on our behalf, the more we should live a life that puts the gospel on display. That's why I'm so grateful for things like this Saturday that we did with Axis. We talked about what it means for a Christian to live in a non-Christian world. And to be honest with you, up until this point in most of our lives, that's not that big of a deal because more often than not, the Christian life doesn't look a lot different than what happens in a non-Christian world. But those days are changing. And praise the Lord for that. We don't dread that. We welcome it. I have been through a process lately of moving from this place of, of fear and anxiety because of all that's been going on in our world to a place of excited anticipation for what God is going to do through the lives of his people when they put the gospel on display. And I was reminded that of again with Axis this weekend. You remember they challenged us to consider our 500-year plan. You remember that? A 500-year plan, and you're thinking, I'm not going to live that long. Exactly. So what are you doing today to promote a legacy of faith that's passed down generation to generation to generation so that 500 years from now, there's a link of faith from one family to the next because you were as intentional about living it out as God has been about showing you the way. What's your 500-year plan? They also talked to us about Jomo. J-O-M-O. You might remember what Jomo is. The joy of missing out. They were trying to point to this attachment that we have with technology, which often is fueled by the fear of missing out, right? We've got to always be scrolling through all of our social media feeds. We want to make sure that when we show up within our circle of friends, we're not being left out of whatever's been going on. It's the fear of missing out. And they said, no, no, no. We're going to live differently. We're going to have a joy of missing out. And here's why that's important. Because our identity is not defined by the device in our hand. Our identity is ultimately determined by God's point of view. From his perspective. So we take great joy in missing out on what else, what, what the world thinks about what's going on. And we take great excitement in seeking to understand what God believes. And what he says is going on. What's true in his eyes. And so they challenged us to, to go to God's Word. And there were three things that they talked about that I thought were so good about what it means to, to spend time in God's Word. They talked about context, community, and a complete story. The, the thought there is that when you go into God's Word, don't just pick out a Bible verse that you just kind of detach from its context and make it apply to your life however you see fit. Read the Bible in its context so that you know what that was intended to mean the day it was written by its author. That's why we preach like we do every Sunday, to preserve the integrity of its intent by reading it within the context it was written. But don't stop there. Don't let your time in God's Word simply be a private time between you and God. You know why? Because if you're like me, 
I don't trust myself. I need community. I need people like Doug McAlpine that I can meet for breakfast on Tuesday morning and say, hey, here's what God's been teaching me. These are things that God's been putting on my heart. So that if in some way I am off track, I trust that God, that Doug is going to help me stay in the path that I need to follow. So read it in context, but also within community where you're sharing that with one another so that we are being edified together as the body of Christ. And never, ever, ever forget the complete story. There is a story of redemption that we have looked at this morning that is repeated in Scripture over and over again. Yes, we live in a sin-cursed world, but there has been a provision provided by God to satisfy His judgment of sin through the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And there will be a day when Christ will return, and we will live eternally in His presence forever. And there, sin no longer exists. So there's a complete story that we don't need to lose sight of. Read it in its context. Read it with community. And don't forget the complete story. You see, that's how we say no to worldly passions and yes to what is good and right and true. I'm not worried about what's going to happen in this next generation. I'm excited. Young people, I'm excited about you. I'm excited about what you're going to face when you're my age and the world is going to be dramatically different and the light in your life will be a stark contrast to the darkness in the world around us. And the gospel that's going to be put on display through the way you live and the way you love your Savior is what will declare his redemption to the ends of the earth. So I'm excited about what God is going to do among his people because it's his promise. And we can always rely on his promise. Let's pray together. Father, I uh, thank you for how intentional you are, how purposeful with every detail. And even though it was a shadow of of a heaven reality, you wanted to go to great lengths to make sure that every part of that picture reflected a spiritual truth, a heavenly reality, a promise of God, and that each of those things ultimately pointed in some way to the work of Jesus Christ. And then on the cross, there is no doubt what you intended to accomplish on that day. That was the day that it was fulfilled when the sacrifice was made for the forgiveness of sins. And from that day, and because of that day, as his people, we live empowered by the Spirit to put the gospel on display for the world around us. And I do believe that the world is asking questions that we as a church have answers to. I do believe that as light goes on and the darkness gets darker, that the light shines brighter. And I'm excited about that. So Lord, help us to be faithful, intentional, about spending time in your word with your people for the glory and praise of your name. It's in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Have a great day.